This is the JGM Show, exploring the world through revolutionary lens. I'm Jacobin, and welcome back to the show. Now, um, it's been a long time. Um, I've been kind of catching up on school, uh, catching up with work, uh, make, keeping myself busy with uh, political theory, and uh, you know, just taking some time off with the podcast for a little bit. But uh, I'm here to say that I'm back and I'm looking forward to more uh, further episodes uh, we have some stuff coming along with uh, Che Guevara uh, the anniversary of the October Revolution uh, we have a lot of stuff coming up so uh, make sure you stay tuned but uh, today we're going to uh, examine uh, and continue uh, our examination of uh Vladimir Lenin's State and Revolution, Chapter 3, Experience of the Paris Commune of 1871 through uh, Marxist analysis. And this section is broken into, um, well, I dare say this chapter is broken up into uh, seven different sections. Um, in the first one, he kind of uh, goes off the basis of asking a question in... What does the heroism of the communards consist? Um, the second one is what is to replace the shattered state machinery? The third section is the destruction of parliamentarism. The fourth section deals with the organization of national unity. Number five deals with the destruction of the parasite state. And so that will break down this segment through uh, five different sections. And the first one we will tackle is, you know, the number one question. In what does the heroism of the communards consist? And I don't think I can do you guys justice without uh, sort of uh, giving some context as to things like the Paris Commune. You know, uh, what it is, what it stood for, and what it means for Marxists. So, the Paris Commune was an insurrection uh, between uh, 1870 and 1871 that established direct democracy uh, in Paris from March 18th through uh, the 28th of May in 1871. Uh, During the events of the Franco-Prussian War, Paris had been defended by the National Guard while work while the uh, working class began to radicalize and there was a rise in uh, some sense of mutiny uh, within the National Guard 
And in March of 1871, during the establishment of the Third Republic under French Chief Executive Adolphe Thiers, soldiers of the National Guard seized control of the city and they refused to accept the authority of the French government. Instead, they went on to establish their own government. The commune only lasted about two months. Um, it established policies that reflected the progressive time of, well, more than just progressive time, but the progressive reaction to the primitive accumulation of capital during the Industrial Revolution, as well as the conflict ensuing with the working, the working class and the capitalist class during the peak of the Gilded Age. And so what we see executed within the commune is a system of direct democracy. Uh, the separation of church and state, self-government, self-determination, the abolition of child labor, the right of employees to take over an enterprise, the mixing of feminist, socialist, and anarchist uh, sentiment to legitimize the commune as a quintessential part of history for all leftists. But the most important aspect of the Paris Commune that we must take out of it was that it established the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, according to Marx, in his critique of the Gotha program, he laid out the foundation of the dictatorship of the proletariat, the period of transition from capitalism to communism, proletariat internationalism, and the role of the party of the working class. Now, the critique of the Gotha program in context was a document based on a letter sent by Marx to the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Germany, which Marx and Engels were working in close association with. It was one of his last major writings. Um, it was named after the Gotha program, which is a proposed party platform manifesto for a forthcoming party congress that was supposed to take place in the city of Gotha. And um, it sort of displayed a resentment towards the uh, revolutionary approach of orthodox, Mar of orthodox Marxists. And instead, the Gotha program was a moderate uh, evolutionary way to socialism. Rather, it was more of a social democratic means of sort of fiddling your way to power through a bourgeois democratic election and through representation in parliament. Basically, Marx outlined the most important principle outlined here in State and Revolution, which is the dictatorship of the proletariat. 
And I've talked so much about it, but what really is it? And a lot of people shun it for its language, you know, using the word dictatorship. People are not, you know, contingent with dictatorship, especially in a modern world. So let's lay some context as to what dictatorship means in this sentiment. The dictatorship of the proletariat is essentially a state of affairs in which the proletariat holds political power. That is, the working class organized to hold power in their own direction. The dictatorship of the proletariat is the intermediate stage between a capitalist economy and an economist economy, whereby the post-revolutionary state seizes the means of production and implements it based off of direct elections on behalf of the ruling proletarian state party. And as we've seen in chapter two, we've observed how the state apparatus simply doesn't disappear after socialism. As Mao said, there's still imperialists, there's still reactionaries, and they're out there to take down the proletarian working class state. So we must organize through that apparatus established by capitalists, uh, bourgeois governments to provoke the reactionaries. and to fight fire with fire. So basically the dictatorship of the proletariat is sort of a system in which the, um, it isn't, I'm not gonna go into the complete details because we can, uh, we'll have an episode on that eventually where we'll define some of the terms. Just a quick little uh, wrap up of that. But basically, the dictatorship of the proletariat, another word for it really is like socialist state, proletarian state, uh, democratic proletarian state, revolutionary dictatorship of the proletariat, and the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, through Marxism and Leninism, which is an interpretation of Marxism by Vladimir Lenin, it seeks to organize within a vanguard party, which Lenin will jump into eventually. Essentially, the vanguard party was to lead the proletarian uprising and assume the power of the state and the economy, the media, and social services on behalf of the proletariat. Now, what difference does this make in the liberal and bourgeois interpretation of dictatorship? Every system, one way or another, is authoritarian without anyone on top to enforce the legitimacy of the status quo. Then there is no status quo. It would be constantly evolving with no direction. 
And so to organize our post-capitalistic society, we must entail and enable a working class vanguard to work and fiddle their way through the past apparatuses that we ourselves were comfortable with. Socialism comes out of the womb of capitalism. It still shares inherent qualities, just like an offspring shares certain qualities of its parents, but it's a completely new thing. And as that continual gradual process works its way into communism, we must be able to organize ourselves in something that we are generally comfortable with, with something that we recognize. And eventually, that works within eliminating class struggle and thereby eliminating the state. The dictatorship of the proletariat is to be governed through the process of something called democratic centralism, which Lenin will describe as something, quote, diversity in discussion and unity in action. The idea is that a government governed by the majority must be united in our actions. But when we converge in discussion to find better means of getting to the same end, that is when you have true democracy. Constant confrontation and constant self-discipline will get us to where we need to be. So I'd like to begin with Lenin's question, in what does the heroism of the communards consist? He says here, quote, It is well known that in the autumn of 1870, a few months prior to the commune, Marx warned the Paris workers that an attempt to overthrow the government would be a, the folly of despair. But when, in March 1871, a decisive battle was forced upon the workers and they accepted it, when the uprising had become a fact, Marx welcomed the proletarian revolution with great enthusiasm in spite of unfavorable auguraries. Marx did not assume the rigid attitude of pedantically condemning an ultimately untimely movement, as did the ill-famed Russian renegade from Marxism, Plekhanov, who in November 1905 wrote encouragingly about the workers' and peasants' struggle, but after December 1905 cried liberal fashion they should not have taken up arms. So again, here we see sort of a conflict of fellow Marxists like Plekhanov in Russia, and even with Marx himself, as Lenin again assumes that he is, you know, the vanguard of the revolution, he serves to legitimize himself and he tries to outmaneuver 
you know, his rivals. And in this, he calls them out. By eventually, we learn to see that Plekhanov contrasts with Marx directly. Although Marx did neglect, initially he neglected the proletarian revolution of the Paris Commune, he eventually came on to love it. And that's where the uh, critique of the Gotha program sort of originates from. His fondness of the dictatorship of the proletariat put into reality by the workers of Paris. Marx, however, was only enthusiastic about the heroism of the communards who stormed the heavens, as he expressed himself. He saw in the mass revolutionary movement, although it did not attain its aim, an historic experiment of gigantic importance, a certain advance of the world proletariat revolution, a practical step more important than hundreds of programs and discussions. To analyze his experiment, to draw from it lessons and tactics, to re-examine his theory in the new light it afforded, such was the problem as it only presented itself to Marx. The only correction which Marx thought it necessary to make in the Communist Manifesto was made by him on the basis of the revolutionary experience of the Paris Communards. The last preface to a new German edition of the Communist Manifesto signed by both its authors is dated June 24th, 1872. In this preface, the authors Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels say that the program of the Communist Manifesto is now in places out of date. Quote, One thing especially, they continue, was proved by the Commune, this, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purpose, unquote. The words within quotation marks in this passage are borrowed by its authors from Marx's book, The Civil War in France. It thus appears that one principle and fundamental lesson of the Paris Commune was considered by Marx and Engels to be of such enormous importance that they introduced it as a vital correction into the Communist Manifesto. I want to give some context to the uh, briefly mentioned uh, pamphlet, The Civil War in France by Marx, which essentially was a unofficial statement of the General Council of the International, uh, the International uh, Working's Man, Working Men's Association, which is known as the First International, on the character and significance of the communards in the Paris Commune. Basically, the concept of the writing revolves itself around Marx observing what was happening in the Paris Commune. He had access to French publications supported by the Commune, as well as uh, various bourgeois periodicals published in London in, in English and French. He also had access to uh, personal interpretations of events passed along by several leading figures in the Commune and associates such as Peter Lavrov and Paul Lefort. Basically, the writing is a history of the Paris Commune, which caused him to reassess the significance of some of his earlier writings 
as mentioned, like the Communist Manifesto, as he would add a preface to it, where he would write that quote, again, no special stress is laid on the revolutionary measure proposed at the end of section two of the Communist Manifesto. That passage would, in many respects, be very different, differently worded today, unquote. And again, this demonstrates the fluidity of Marxism and the importance of constant self-criticism. And it shows how flexible we must be to use things of the past, ideas of the past, in a modern world where complete different material conditions enable complete different morals and ideas. Vladimir Lenin will write that, quote, Marxist's idea is that the working class must break up, smash the ready-made state machinery, and not confine itself merely to laying hold of it. Now, this is important because the state machinery will eventually be utilized again to put down the reactionary and capitalist uh, resistance to the transition of the masses to complete political power. But again, this sort of plays into what was mentioned in chapter 2 with the withering away of the state in that the working class grabs this uh, more than grabs but takes control of the state machinery uses it to quell the resistance and then eventually it's up to them it is their responsibility to destroy that state machinery it is most characteristic that it is precisely this vital correction in the Communist Manifesto, which has been distorted by the opportunists and its meaning, probably is not known to nine-tenths, if not ninety-nine-hundredths of the readers of the Communist Manifesto. If, if not really, a, a good chunk of people haven't really understood the Manifesto at all, and its context, and what its purpose is, which we'll eventually jump into later on. We shall deal with this distortion more fully further on in a chapter devoted specially to distortions. It will be sufficient here to note that the current vulgar interpretation of Marxist's famous utterance quoted above consists in asserting that Marx is here emphasizing the idea of gradual development in contradistinction to a seizure of power and so on. As a matter of fact, exactly the opposite is the case. Marxist idea is that the working class must break up, shatter the ready-made state machinery, and not confine itself merely to taking possession of it. And in a letter, Marx wrote, quote, If you look at the last chapter of my 18th Brumaire, you will see that I declare that the next attempt of the French Revolution must be, not as in the past, to transfer the bureaucratic and military machinery from one hand to another, but to break it up. And this is the the precondition of any real people's revolution on the continent. And this is what our heroic party comrades in Paris have attempted. 
In these words, to break up the bureaucratic and military machinery is contained, briefly formulated, the principal lesson of Marxism on the tasks of the proletariat in relation to the state during a revolution. And it is just this lesson which has not only been forgotten, but downright distorted by the prevailing opportunists in their interpretation of Marxism. As for Marx's reference to the 18th Brumaire, we have quoted above the corresponding passage in full. It is interesting to note two particular points in the passages of Marx of what Marx is quoted. First, he confines his conclusions to the continent. That was natural in 1871 when England was still the model of a purely capitalist country, but without a military machine and, in large measure, without a bureaucracy. Hence, Marx excluded England where a revolution, even a people's revolution, could be imagined and was then possible without the preliminary condition of destroying the ready-made state machinery. Today, in 1917, in the epoch of the First Great Imperialist War, this exception made by Marx is no longer valid. Both England and America, the greatest and last representatives of Anglo-Saxon liberty in the sense of the absence of militarism and bureaucracy, have today plunged headlong into the all-European dirty, bloody Morris of military bureaucratic institutions to which everything is subordinated and which trample everything underfoot. Today, both in England and in America, the precondition of any real people's revolution is the breakup, the shattering of the ready-made state machinery. Secondly, particular attention should be given to Marxist's extremely profound remark that the destruction of the military and the bureaucratic apparatus of the state is the precondition of any real people's revolution. This idea of a people's revolution seems strange on Marxist's lips and the Russian Mensheviks, those followers of Struve who wish to be considered Marxists, might possibly declare such an expression to be a slip of the tongue. They have reduced Marxism to such a state of poverty-stricken liberal distortion that nothing exists for them beyond the distinction between bourgeois and proletarian revolution, and even that distinction they understand in an entirely lifeless way. If we take, for examples, the revolutions of the 20th century, we shall, of course, have to recognize both the Portuguese and the Turkish revolutions as bourgeois. As bourgeois. Neither, however, is a people's revolution, in as so much as the mass of the people, the enormous majority, does not make its appearance actively, independently, with its own economic and political demands in either the one or the other. On the other hand, the Russian bourgeois revolution of 1905 to 1907, although it presented no such brilliant successes as at times fell to a lot of the Portuguese and Turkish revolutions. It was undoubtedly a real people's revolution since the mass of the people, the majority, the lowest social deaths, crushed down by oppression and exploitation, were rising independently since they put on the entire course of the revolution the stamp of their demands, their attempts at building up in their own way a new society in place of the old society that was being shattered. In the Europe of 1871, the proletariat on the continent did not constitute the majority of the people. 
a people's revolution actually sweeping the majority into its current could be such only if it embraced both the proletariat and the peasantry. Both classes then constituted the people. Both classes are united by the circumstance that the bureaucratic and military state machinery oppresses, crushes, exploits them. To shatter this machinery, to break it up, this is the true interest of the people of its majority, the workers and most of the peasants. This is the preliminary condition of a free union of the poorest peasantry with the proletarians. While without such a union, democracy is unstable and socialist reorganization is impossible. Towards such a union, as is well known, the Paris Commune was making its way, though it did not reach its goal owing to a number of circumstances internal and e external. Consequently, when speaking of a real people's revolution, Marx without in the least forgetting the, the peculiar characteristics of the petty bourgeoisie, which was very carefully taken into account in the actual interrelation of classes in most of the continental universal and European states in 1871. On the other hand, he stated that the breaking up of the state machinery is demanded by the interests both of the workers and of the peasants, that it unites them, that it places before them the common task of removing the parasite and replacing it by something new. Well, by what exactly? Section two moves into the question, what is to replace the shattered state machinery? In 1847, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx answered this question still in a purely abstract manner, stating the problems rather than the methods of solving them. To replace this machinery by the proletariat organized as a ruling class by establishing democracy such was the answer of the Communist Manifesto. Without resorting to utopias, Marx wanted f waited for the experience of a mass movement to produce the answer to the problem as to the exact forms which this organization of the proletariat as the ruling class will assume and as to the exact manner in which this organization will be combined with the most complete, most consistent establishment of democracy. The experiment of the commune, meager as it was, was subjected by Marx to the most careful analysis in his civil, the civil war in France. Let us quote the most important passages of his work. There developed in the 19th century, he says, originating from the days of absolute monarchy, the centralized state power with its ubiquitous organs of standing army, police, bureaucracy, clergy, and jud judiciary. With the development of class antagonism between capital and labor, the state power assumed more and more the character of the national power of capital over labor of a public force organized for social enslavement of an engine of class despotism. After every revolution making a progressive phase in the class struggle, after every revolution marking a progressive phase in the class struggle, the purely repressive character of the state power stands out in bolder and bolder relief. The state power after the revolution of 1848 through 1849 became the national war engine of capital against labor. The second empire consolidated this. The direct antithesis of the empire was the commune, says Marx. It was the positive form of a republic that was not only to supersede the monarchical form of class rule, but class rule itself. 
What was this positive form of the proletarian? The socialist republic? What was the state it was beginning to create? The first decree of the commune was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people, says Marx. This demand now figures in the program of every party calling itself socialist. But the value of their programs is best shown by the behavior of our socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks, who, even after the revolution of March 12, 1917, refused to carry out this demand in practice. Quote, the commune was formed of municipal councillors chosen by universal suffrage in various words of the town, responsible and revocable at short terms. The majority of its members were naturally looking men or acknowledged representatives of the working class. Instead of continuing to be the agent of the central government, the police was at once stripped of its political attributes and turned into the responsible and at times revocable agent of the commune. So were the officials of all other branches of the administration. From the members of the commune downwards, the public service had to be done at working men's wage. The vested interests and the representation allowances of the high dignitaries of state disappeared, along with the high dignitaries themselves. Having once got rid of the standing army and the police, the physical force elements of the old government, the commune was anxious to break the spiritual force of, repre of repression, the parson power. The judicial functionaries were to be divested of their sham independence. Like the rest of public servants, magistrates, and judges were to be elected, responsible, and revocable. Unquote. Thus, the commune would appear to have replaced the shattered state machinery only by fuller democracy, abolition of the standing army, all officials to be fully elected and subject to recall. But as a matter of fact, this only signifies a gigantic replacement of one type of institution by others of a fundamentally different order. Here we observe the case of transformation of quantity into quality. Democracy, introduced as fully and consistently as is generally thinkable, is transformed from capitalist democracy into proletarian democracy. From the state, i.e. a special force for the suppression of a particular class, into something which is no longer really the state in the accepted sense of the word. It is still necessary to suppress the bourgeoisie and crush its resistance. This was particularly necessary for the commune. And one of the reasons of its defeat was that it did not do this with, it, with sufficient determination. But the organ of suppression is now the majority of the population and not a, min a minority, as was always the case under slavery, serfdom, and wage labor. And once the majority of the people itself suppresses its oppressors, a special force for suppression is no longer necessary. In this sense, the state begins to wither away. Instead of the special institutions of a privileged minority, the majority can itself directly fulfill all these functions. And the more the discharge of the function of state power devolves upon the people, the less need is there for the existence of this power. This sort of goes back to chapter 2, with this assessment of the uh, definition of the state, an organ of suppression for the capitalist class against the working class. And again, once the majority of the people suppresses its oppressors, there's no longer the need for a special force to suppress the oppressors.
But again, this is such a gradual process. This doesn't happen overnight. Which is why we still see state apparatuses exist in modern day uh, socialist states. Let's continue. In this connection, the commune's measure emphasized by Marx, particularly worthy of note, is the abolition of all representation allowances and of all money privileges in the case of officials, the reduction of the remuneration of all servants of the state to working men's wages. Here is shown more clearly than anywhere else the break from the bourgeois democracy to a proletarian democracy from the democracy of the oppressors to the democracy of the oppressed classes, from the state as a special force for suppression of a given class to the suppression of the oppressors by the whole force of the majority of the people, the workers and the peasants. And it is precisely on this most striking point, perhaps the most important as far as the problem of the state is concerned, that the teachings of Marx have been entirely forgotten. In popular commentaries, whose number is legion, this is not mentioned. It is proper to keep silent about it as if we were a piece of old-fashioned naivete. Just as the Christians, after Christianity had attained the position of a state religion, forgot the naivete of primitive Christianity with its democratic revolutionary spirit. The reduction of the remuneration of the highest state officials seems simply a demand of naive, primitive democracy. One of the founders of modern opportunism, the former social democrat Edward Bernstein, had more than once exercised his talents in repeating the vulgar bourgeois jeers at primitive democracy. Like all opportunists, including the president Kaltiskis, he fails completely to understand that, first of all, the transition from capitalism to socialism is impossible without return, in a measure, to primitive democracy. How can one otherwise pass on to the discharge of all the state functions by the majority of the population and by every individual of the population? And secondly, he forgets that primitive democracy on the basis of capitalism and capitalist culture is not the same primitive democracy as in prehistoric or pre-capitalist times. Capitalist culture has created large-scale production, factories, railways, the postal service, telephones, etc. And on this basis, the great majority of functions of the old state power have become so simplified and can be reduced to such simple operations of registration, filing, and checking that they will be quite within the reach of every literate person and it will be possible to perform them for working men's wages, which circumstance can and must strip those functions of every shadow of privilege of every appearance of official grandeur. All officials without exception elected and subject to recall at any time their salaries reduced to working men's wages. These simple and self-evident democratic measures, which completely uniting the interests of the workers and the majority of peasants at the same time, serve as a bridge leading from capitalism to socialism. These measures refer to the state, to the purely political reconstruction of society. But, of course, they, they acquire their full meaning and significance only in connection with the expropriation of the expropriators, either accomplished or in pr preparation, i.e. with the turning of capitalist private ownership of the means of production into social ownership. Marx wrote, quote, the commune made that catchword of bourgeois revolutions, cheap government, a reality by destroying the two greatest sources of expenditure. 
the standing army, and state functionarism. From the peasantry, as from other sections of the petty bourgeoisie, only an insignificant few rise to the top, occupy a place in the sun in the bourgeois sense, i.e. become either well-to-do people or secure privileged officials. The great majority of peasants in every capitalist country where the peasantry exists, and in majority of capitalist countries are of this kind, is oppressed by the government and longs for its overthrow, longs for cheap government. This can be realized only by the proletariat, and by realizing it, the proletariat makes at the same time a step forward towards the socialist reconstruction of the state. Section 3 begins with the destruction of parliamentarism. The commune, says Marx, was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time. Instead of deciding one once in three or six years which member of the ruling class was to represent the people in parliament, universal suffrage was to serve the people, constituted in communes, as individual suffrage serves every other employer in search for the working men and managers in his business. This remarkable criticism of parliamentarism, made in 1871, also belongs to the forgotten words of Marxism, thanks to the prevalence of social chauvinism and opportunism. Ministers and professional parliamentarians, traitors to the proletarian and socialist sharks of our day, have left all criticism of parliamentarism to the anarchists. And, on this wonderfully intelligent ground, denounce all criticism of parliamentarism as anarchism. It is not surprising that the proletariat of the most advanced parliamentary countries, being disgusted with such socialists as Messrs. Schiederman, David, Legion, Sembat, etc., have been giving its sympathies more and more to anarcho-syndicalism, in spite of the fact that it is but the twin brother of opportunism. But to Marx, revolutionary dialectics was never the empty fashionable phrase. Marx knew how to break with anarchism ruthlessly for its inability to make use of the stable of the bourgeois parliamentarism, especially at a time when the situation was not revolutionary. But at the same time, he knew how to subject parliamentarism to a really revolutionary proletarian criticism. To decide once every few years which member of the ruling class is to repress and oppress the people through parliament, this is the real essence of bourgeois parliamentarism, not only in parliamentary constitutional monarchies, but also in the most democratic republics. But if the question of the state is raised, if parliamentarism is to be regarded as one institution of the state, when then, from the point of the view of the tasks of the proletariat in this realm, is to be the way out of parliamentarism? How can we do without it? Again and again, we must repeat the teaching of Marx based on the study of the commune, which has been completely forgotten that any criticism of parliamentarism other than anarchist or reactionary is quite unintelligible to the present-day social democrat. The way out of parliamentarism is to be found, of course, not in the abolition of the representative institutions and the elective principle, but in the conversion of the representative institutions from, more, from mere talking shops into working bodies. 
The commune was to be a working, not a parliamentary body, executive and legislative at the same time. Remember that. This hits the vital spot of present-day parliamentarians and the parliamentary social democratic lapdogs. Take any parliamentary country from America to Switzerland, from France to England, Norway, and so forth. The actual work of the state there is done behind the scenes and is carried out by the departments, the offices, and the staffs. Parliament itself is given up to talk for the special purpose of fooling the common people. This is so true that even in the Russian Republic, a bourgeois democratic republic, all these aims of parliamentarism were immediately revealed, even before a real parliament was created. The venile and rotten parliamentarism of bourgeois society is replaced in the commune by institutions in which freedom of opinion and discussion does not degenerate into deception. For the parliamentarians must themselves work, must themselves execute their own laws, must themselves verify the results in actual life, must themselves be directly responsible to their electorate. Representative institutions remain, but parliamentarism as a special system, as a division of labor between the legislative and the executive functions, as a privileged position for the deputies, no longer exists. Without representative institutions, we cannot imagine democracy, not even proletarian democracy, but we can and must think of democracy without parliamentarism. If criticism of bourgeois society is not mere empty words for us, if the desire to overthrow the rule of the bourgeoisie is our serious and sincere desire and not a mere election cry for catching working men's votes, then we can produce a material reality in which state machinery is broken down and a new society emerges. It is most instructive to notice that in speaking of the functions of those officials who are necessary both in the commune and in the proletariat democracy, Marx compares them with the workers of every other employer that is of the usual capitalist concern with its workers and managers. There is no trace of utopianism in Marx in the sense of inventing or imagining a new society. No, he studies as a process of natural history the birth of the new society from the old. The forms of transition from the latter to the former. When we talk about this transition to a new society, we know that it is a process of history. It doesn't come out of the bloom. It doesn't come from someone's mind. But it comes from constant class struggle and the gradual modification of society using material analysis and dialectics of the past and the present. That is why dialectical materialism and historical materialism are so important to understanding our modern world. And any Marxist or even any leftist who denies the importance of dialectics, materialism, and its interrogation of history that confronts our world for what it is, then they are not leftists. They are leftists in name only. The channel, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into dialectical and historical materialism eventually. 
But right now, let's go on. To destroy officialdom immediately, everywhere, completely, this cannot be thought of. That is utopia. But to break it up at once, the old bureaucratic machine, and to start immediately the construction of a new one, which will enable us to gradually to reduce all officialdom to naught. This is no utopia. It is the experience of the commune. It is the direct and urgent task of the revolutionary proletariat. It has already been done. The process has already been done. It, it's real. It has happened in the past. It, it's something that cannot be denied. This isn't utopian. This is science. That is why it is called scientific socialism. And it is quite distinct from utopian socialism. Capitalism simplifies the functions of state administration. It makes it possible to throw off commanding methods and to reduce everything to a matter of the organization of the proletarians. Hiring, you know, working men and managers in the name of the whole society. We are not utopians. We do not indulge in dreams of how best to do away immediately with all administration, with all subordination. These anarchist dreams, based upon the lack of understanding of the task of proletarian dictatorship, are basically foreign to Marxism, and, as a matter of fact, they serve but to put off the socialist revolution until human nature is different. No, we want the socialist revolution with human nature as it is now, with human nature that cannot do without subordination control and managers. But if there be subordination, it must be to the armed vanguard of all the exploited and the laboring to the proletariat. The, the specific commanding methods of the state officials can and must be to be replaced immediately within 24 hours by the simple functions of managers and bookkeepers functions which are now already within the capacity of the average city dweller and can be performed for working men's wages. We organize large-scale production, starting from what capitalism has already created. We workers ourselves, relying on our own experience as workers, establishing a strict and iron discipline supported by the state power of the armed workers, shall reduce the role of the state officials to that of simply carrying out our instructions as responsible, moderately paid managers. Of course, with technical knowledge of all sorts, types, and degrees. This is our proletarian task. With this, we can and must begin with carrying through a proletarian revolution. Such a beginning on the basis of large-scale production of itself leads to the gradual withering away of all bureaucracy, to the gradual creation of a new order. An order without quotation marks, an order which has nothing to do with wage slavery, an order in which the more and more simplified functions of control and accounting will be performed by each in turn, will then become a habit, and will finally die out as special functions of a special stratum of the population. A witty German social democrat of the 70s of the last century called the post office an example of the socialist system. This is very true. 
At present, the post office is a business organized on the lines of a state capitalist monopoly. Imperialism is gradually transforming all trusts into organizations of a similar type. Above, the common workers who are overloaded with work and starving, there stands here the same bourgeois bureaucracy. But the mechanism of social management is here already in hand. Overthrow the capitalists, crush with the iron hand of the armed workers the resistance of these exploiters, break the bureaucratic machine of the modern state, and you have before you a mechanism of the highest technical equipment, freed of parasites, capable of being set into motion by the united workers themselves, who hire their own technicians, managers, bookkeepers, and pay them all, as indeed every state official with the usual worker's wage. Here is a concrete, practical task immediately, immediately realizable in relation to all trusts, a task that frees the workers of exploitation and makes use of the experience, especially within the realm of the construction of the state, which the commune began to reveal in practice. To organize the whole national economy like the postal system in such a way that the technicians, managers, bookkeepers, as well as all officials should receive no higher wages than working men's wages, all under the control and leadership of the armed proletariat, this is our immediate aim. This is the kind of state and economic basis we need. This is what will produce the destruction of parliamentarism by retaining representative institutions. This is what will free the laboring classes from the prostitution of these institutions by the bourgeoisie. 4. The Organization of National Unity In a rough sketch of national organization, which the commune had no time to develop, it states clearly that the commune was to be a political form of even the smallest country hamlet. From these communes would be elected the national delegation at Paris. The few but important functions which still would remain for a central government were not to be suppressed, as has been intentionally misstated, but were to be discharged by communal and therefore strictly responsible agents. The unity of the nation was not to be broken, but on the contrary, to be organized by the com communal constitution and to become a reality by the destruction of the state power which claimed to be the embodiment of that unitary of that unity independent of and superior to the nation itself from which it was but a parasitic exorcism while the merely repressive organs of the old governmental power were to be amputated its legitimate functions were to be wrested from an authority usurping preeminence over society itself and restored, and restored to the responsible agents of society. To what extent the opportunists of contemporary social democracy have failed to understand, or perhaps it would be more true to say, did not want to understand, these observations of Marx is best shown by the famous book of the renegade Bernstein. I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. It is just in connection with the above passage from Marx that Bernstein wrote saying that the program in its political content displays in all its essential features the greatest similarity to the federalism of Proudhon. In spite of all the other points of difference between Marx and the petty bourgeois Proudhon, on these points, their ways of thinking resemble each other as closely as could be. Of course, Bernstein continues, the importance of the municipalities is growing, but 
It seems to me doubtful whether the first task of democracy would be to would be such a dissolution of the modern states as such a complete transformation of their organization as is described by Marx and Proudhon. So the whole previous mode of national representation would vanish completely. This is really monstrous. Thus, to confuse Marxist's views on the destruction of state power of the parasitic exorcists with the federalism of Proudhon. But this is no accident, for it never occurs to the opportunist that Marx is not speaking here at all of federalism as opposed to centralism, but of the destruction of the old bourgeois state machinery which exists in all bourgeois countries. To the opportunist occurs only what he sees around him. In a society of petty bourgeois philistinism, and reformist stagnation, namely only municipalities. As for a proletarian revolution, the opportunist has forgotten even how to imagine it. It is amusing. Federalism is not touched upon in Marx's observations about the experience of the commune as quoted above. Marx agrees with Proudhons precisely on the point which has quite escaped the opportunist Bernstein. Marx differs from Proudhon just on the point where Bernstein sees their agreement. Marx agrees with Proudhon in that they both stand for the destruction of the contemporary state machinery. Marx defers both from Proudhon and Bakunin precisely on the point of federalism, not to speak of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Federalism arises as a principle from the petty bourgeois views of anarchism. Marx is a centralist. In the above quoted observations of his, there is no deviation from centralism. Only people full of petty bourgeois superstitious faith in the state can mistake the destruction of the bourgeois state for the destruction of centralism. But will it not be centralism if the proletariat and poorest peasantry take the power from the state in their own hands, organize themselves freely into communes, and unite the action of all the communes in striking at capital, in crushing the resistance of the capitalists, in the transfer of private property in railways, factories, land, and so forth, to the entire nation, to the whole of society? Will that not be the most consistent democratic centralism and proletarian centralism at that? Bernstein cannot simply conceive the possibility of voluntary centralism of a voluntary union of the communes into a nation a voluntary fusion of the proletarian communes in the process of destroying bourgeois supremacy and the bourgeois state machinery like all philistines bernstein can't imagine bernstein can't imagine centralism only as something from above to be imposed and maintained solely by means of bureaucracy and militarism Marx, as though he foresaw the possibility of the perversion of his ideas, purposely emphasizes that the accusation against the commune that it desired to destroy the unity of the nation to do away with the central power was a deliberate falsehood. Marx purposely used the phrase to organize the unity of the nation so as to contrast conscious democratic proletarian centralism to bourgeois military bureaucratic centralism. But no one is so deaf as who will not hear. The opportunists of contemporary social democracy do not, on any account, want to hear of destroying the state power of cutting off the parasite. And finally, we reach part five, destruction of the parasite state. We have already quoted part of Marx's statements on this subject, and we must now complete his presentation. Quote, 
It is generally the fate of completely new historical creations, wrote Marx, to be mistaken for the counterpart of older and even defunct forms of social life to which they may bear a certain likeness. Thus, this new commune which breaks the modern state power has been mistaken for a reproduction of the medieval communes, for a federation of small states, for an exaggerated form of the ancient struggle against over-centralism. The communal constitution would have restored to the social body all the forces hitherto absorbed by the state parasite feeding upon and clogging the free movements of society. By this one act, it would have initiated the regeneration of France. The communal constitution brought into rural producers under the intellectual lead of the central towns of their districts and there secured in them to them in the working man the natural trustees of their interests the very existence of the commune involved as a matter of course local municipal liberty but no longer as a check upon this now superseded state power breaks in the modern state power which was a parasitic excrescence its amputation, its destruction, the now superseded state power. These are all expressions used by Marx regarding the state which he appraised and analyzed during the experience of the commune. All this was written a little less than half a century ago, and now one has to undertake excavations, as it were, in order to bring uncorrupted Marxism to the knowledge of the masses. The conclusions drawn from the observation of the last great revolution through which Marx lived have been forgotten just as the moment when the time had arrived for the next great proletarian revolutions. Quote, the municipality of interpretations to which the commune has been subjected and the municipality of interests which construed it in their favor show that it was thoroughly expansive political system. While all previous forms of government have been emphatically repressive, it is true that this was a secret it was essentially a working class government the product of the struggle of the producing against the appropriating class the political forum at last discovered under which to work out the economical emancipation of labor except on the list last condition the communal constitution would have been an impossibility and a delusion the utopians busied themselves with the discovery of the political form under which the socialist reconstruction of society could take place. The anarchists turned away from the question of political forms altogether. The opportunists of modern social democracy accepted the bourgeois political forms of parliamentary, democratic state as the limit which cannot be overstepped. They broke their foreheads praying before this idol, denouncing as anarchism every attempt to destroy these forms. Marx deducted from the whole history of socialism and political struggle that the state was bound to disappear and that the transitional form of its disappearance, the transition from the political state to no state, would be the proletariat organizing as the ruling class. But Marx did not undertake the task of discovering the political forms of this future stage. He limited himself to an exact observation of French history, its analysis and the conclusion to which the year 1851 had led this, the that matters we're moving towards the destruction of the bourgeois machinery of the state and when the mass revolutionary movement of the proletariat burst forward marx in spite of the failure of that movement in spite of its short life and its patent weakness began to study what political forms it had disclosed 
The commune is the form at last discovered by the proletarian revolution, under which the economic liberation of labor can proceed. The commune is the first attempt of a proletarian revolution to break up the bourgeois state machinery and constitute the political form at last discovered, which can and must take the place of the broken machine. We shall see below that the Russian revolutions of 1905 and, 19 and 1917, in different surroundings and under different circumstances, continued the work of the commune and confirmed the historical analysis made by the genius of Marx. So that was pretty heavy. Um, there's a lot to detail, um, but if I was to wrap it up pretty sim uh, pretty simplistically, essentially the proletariat must use the apparatus of what the state is as a force of suppressing certain classes. And so it must create a proletarian state and inspired by the state machinery of the bourgeois state, it must use that to ultimately destroy it and to expropriate the expropriators at the ultimate ending. Next time we will jump into chapter 4, which details... The supplementary explanation by Engels, where he sort of jumps into Engels's contribution to assessing the Paris Commune. This is the JGM Show, signing off.